say. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive. We thank you for the health that you do give us. And at this time, we also pray for those sick in our congregation who are many and who are struggling. And you know all their pains and discomforts. We ask, Father, that you heal them if it's your will. And of course, we know that your word states you won't give them more than they can bear. And you'll even provide them the way of escape also so they can endure it. Father, we're just so grateful for your grace in every form. Help us not take it for granted that you're a perfect father who knows exactly how to love us and exactly what to give us. And Father, most of all, we're thankful that you sent your son once for all to take our place in judgment, the greatest grace ever shown to any creation. Father, help us to appreciate this every day, to be saved daily, to enjoy your grace with gratitude in our hearts. We ask that you bless this message, that your spirit guide us and teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 48. So tonight I encourage you to sit back and relax. Don't sit back too much. Don't get too comfortable. But there are a lot of slides tonight. So, uh, you know, it'll kind of bring new, you know, def new meaning to the word slideshow, you know. It's going to be kind of constant. So good for you. You know, it's a little easier on you. But again, uh, keep paying attention and, and lean forward in your seat if you need to because uh, it's easy to get lethargic. There are a lot of uh, points, both review and new points from the Spirit regarding our subject. And we opened on Sunday thinking about the cross and what motivated the Lord to go through it all, ultimately able to say it is finished on our behalf. What causes someone to act in grace is simply and only love. What causes someone to act in grace like the Lord did for us at the cross? True grace is simply and only love. We heard this on Sunday morning on the board regarding grace and love. Love is the pure motivation that causes true unselfish kindness, which is grace, to be freely cast towards another. There we see love in action grace. Again, love is the pure motivation that causes true unselfish kindness, grace, to be freely cast towards another. There we see love in action, grace. The Spirit also asked us to dwell on this truth on the board on Sunday. It's only by grace, or it's only grace, when it's from a root of love. It's only grace when it's from a root of love. An act is not truly gracious unless it's motivated by love. But if it's motivated by selfish gain of some kind, even though it might appear to be gracious, it was not truly an act done in grace. And God looks at the heart, remember. God doesn't look at the actual act. He looks at the motivation behind the act. God looks at the heart. So an act is not truly gracious unless it's motivated by love. But back to the cross. Obviously the Lord was perfect, therefore possessing perfect motivation. So we can safely conclude all of his acts of grace, especially the cross, the biggest one, all of his acts of grace were motivated by his perfect love. They were true acts of grace because of that. So we consider the greatest example in human history, which will endure forever as such, on the board regarding grace. The cross is the greatest example of grace we've got, including the person who hung on it, whom the Bible describes as full of grace and truth. 
We'll never receive a greater gift. We'll never receive a gift given more freely and more completely than what happened at the cross. And as we heard on Sunday, everything after the Messiah is an extension of His grace. On the board, just like the grace of God didn't fail Him on the cross, it won't fail us regarding our carrying our own cross. So think about it this way. God doesn't ask us to do something that He won't provide the strength for. Your perfect Father, He's not a Father that goes over the line one way or the other. Your perfect Father will always provide you the strength to go through what He gives you. He won't ask you to do something that He won't provide the strength for. And His strength is given to us by grace. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, by the way. That's one of the things He graces us out with, is His strength, is the actual ability to handle the very thing that He gives us. Pastor also asked us to dwell on this principle on Sunday. I hope you did. Take some time to yourself between you and the Lord. The fact that grace never fails. That's a big statement. Grace never fails. This is absolutely true no matter what man concludes to the contrary. If you don't see the good in something, it's your limitation, not God's failure. Even discipline is a form of grace. Doubt, however, is not from God. And the problem is, Satan spends an inordinate amount of time trying to distract you from this truth. What truth? The fact that grace never fails. He spends a ton of time trying to distract you. What's the best way to distract somebody? Usually it's with words. It's with persuasion, smooth and flattering speech, maybe. He spends an inordinate amount of time trying to distract you from this truth that grace never fails so that you'll get off the good path. So why and how is this true in our lives? I mean, how can this be true considering our faults and failures? How can we say about our own lives that grace never fails in our own lives? Think about it this way. When you first received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you received grace from God. Right? Amen? When you first received Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you first surrendered to Him truly and asked Him to save you from your sin, you at that moment received grace from God. On the board in John 1, 12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So again, when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you also received grace from God, the grace of eternal salvation. If you've now already received grace from God and his grace is perfect, then how can it ever actually fail you? You've already received grace from God, right? At salvation? How can that grace that's perfect actually fail you or be insufficient? That's why grace never fails. It can't. On the board, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, part A, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I don't care how weak you are right now. How weak you feel. Power is perfected in weakness. That's when God does his best work, and he certainly gets all the glory. We can't take any credit when we know how weak we are, when we're at our lowest. We can't take any credit. And so that's where God gets all the glory, and he shines through us. Again, God had said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So there we have a plain statement of truth on the board from the Lord to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. 
It just is. He says that to all of us too. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, it will get you, believer, through anything in this life that I ordain for you. It's just a fact. There's no doubt about that because there's no insufficiency with God's grace provisions. When God provides, he always provides enough. Now, in your opinion, it may not be enough. In your opinion, you, you might think you don't have enough, but you might need to go through something to see that what you have is enough. I think of people in, in countries like you know Africa, a lot of countries in Africa, India, and how they often eat once a day, maybe not even some days. And in their mind, they might think, I don't have enough. But you know what? If they're still alive, God's giving them enough, maybe just enough, maybe just what they need to be truly humble before the Lord. Who knows what God's working in anybody's soul, the multiple things. But um, the fact is, it is enough. It is sufficient because he has all knowledge. And he has granted grace to the humble, to those who believe in his name. So it's only believing the lies of Satan and the kingdom of darkness that causes us to look to the right and to the left. It's only the lies of Satan and the kingdom of darkness that cause us to turn our head and look to the right or to the left. Something else might satisfy me better. I don't think God's grace is sufficient right now. Not because it's not sufficient, because I want more right now. So because I want more in my flesh, I'm going to look to the right or to the left and see or look for a better offer. Stupidly listening to the lies in this world. But on the board, as we've seen, you can't catch the wind. How often do we find ourselves striving after wind, as Ecclesiastes says? Yet even knowing the impossibility of catching it, Man chooses the path of futility over God's righteous way. Why do we do this? Why do we keep doing this? It's arrogance. It's pride. I can find a better way. You know, I know this path is from God, and it's straight. There's no confusion. But I see a path in the woods right there, and it looks good. It looks really good. I, see, I think I see a couple gold pebbles on the path over there. And so you convince yourself, you talk yourself into why you should go down the futile path that, again, like the rabbit on the greyhound track, can never be caught. So it's simply arrogance and pride. And that's why humility is so valuable. Evil has permeated so many souls in our country. I feel and I often think and pray for, you know, just our people in general in our country. Um, the mass deception that's going on. People today look at it like a game, as we've been learning, to see how much they can gain for themselves. That's how they look at life, as a game to see how much they can acquire, they can cushion themselves, protect themselves. But it's a wicked game. It's an evil game because they harm others along the way without even a conscience, which is one way you know someone is probably not a believer, without a conscience that, that gnaws at them. All for personal gain. People today don't even care about the casualties they leave behind, in other words. And I was there. I mean, I remember as a young man, I was there in selfish mode. A lot of you probably remember experiencing that too, but not even caring about the casualties you leave behind. So long as you're on top, taking care of number one, as they say. Talk about a false statement. Taking care of number one. When really we're number three, aren't we? God, others, self. But the world's convinced that that's the good thing to do. Take care of number one. To whatever cost comes to others. And this is directly against the Lord's command to love one another. Directly against that. But people don't want to hear it. They choose to be blind. In Romans 1, they choose to put God off ignore his calling on their life, 
even deny him as the creator. They're blind leading the blind. Ultimately, arrogance is a choice. We've seen in Proverbs 10.23, here in the Amplified Classic, it is a sport to a self-confident fool to do wickedness, but to have skillful and godly wisdom is pleasure and relaxation to a man of understanding. And it's really as simple as this. A soul without wisdom from God's word is like an empty head. You've got to love the message translation. Getting to the point. An empty head thinks mischief is fun, but a mindful person relishes wisdom. Man's sport shouldn't be how much he can gain for himself, which makes a lot of sense in the worldly thinking, system of thinking. It should be how much he can bring glory to his creator and savior. If you have a pure perspective, a humble perspective, and you look back and say, whoa, I'm here for a reason. This is not a coincidence. I'm alive right now. I'm breathing. I can see. I have a conscience. I can see all this amazing creation, which is too intricate to be a chance, a by chance thing. That's the humility we should be walking around with, but most people don't. People ignore the one that they're actually going to face one day and receive eternal judgment from. But that's how good a job Satan's done. He's steered the eyes of most people to the wrong sport. To thinking good is evil and evil is good, like Isaiah 5 says. One of the signs of the times. Totally duped. Totally deceived. So, you know, the Word of God says, if you want to look at good sport, if we're going to make sport of anything, let it be to live by faith. That's the sport we should take on, so to speak. That's the challenge or the quest we should take on. Live by faith, which as we know is pleasing to God. Sweet aroma to God when we live by faith. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, in the Amplified, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run their very best to win, but only one receives the prize? Run your race in such a way that you may seize the prize and make it yours. I like what Pastor said on Sunday on the board. It's not about winning. It's about running to win. It's not about the fact that you have to beat everybody else and win the race that way. It's running the race like you want to win. It's running the race like you truly want to do your best for God. And that's the person that's going to have no regrets at the end when the time comes to face the Lord. No regrets. Notice in verse 24, let's go back to um, on the board, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Notice the phrase, in such a way. There's a way to run the race before God. God looks at the heart, right? God looks at the heart. So he's very concerned about the way we run the race, not that we do it, not that we beat others. He's not even concerned with the final result, necessarily. He's concerned with how we run the race. What's our motivation? Is it love and grace? Or is it selfish gain to gather as many crowns to self as I can? What's your motivation? God is looking to see how we're running the race. And he honors the heart that's all in for his glory. That's what he wants. None of us are perfect. None of us have perfect motivation all the time. Uh, Don't think it's possible in this flesh. But we can keep going on that vector, can't we? Isn't that our objective, to stay on that path, to, to stay in that lifestyle, and to let God grow us, to ask for more faith even, and say, Lord, show me how to really do this for you. Change my heart to have your love be my motivation so that I'm not doing this for self. Running the race to glorify God to the maximum. Paul is a good example of that. So motivation 
is key. And love for God is the great motivation that will inspire us to run the race to win for the Lord. On the board, in such a way. The way to run the race includes whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Like Colossians 3.23. And let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16.14. There's a way to run the race properly. And notice the words, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Let all that you do be done in love. See, these are all-encompassing words here. In other words, nothing's excluded from these commands and this desire of God for you. So we might say, do it for the Lord and do it in love. Whatever you're doing, do it for the Lord and do it in love. It's that simple. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's a way to run the race, you know, with God's approval. Pleasing God. This is how we can glorify God in our daily lives, whatever our current job or assignment is. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Now, if you're doing nothing, that's between you and the Lord. You know, this came up last week. If you're not doing anything good for the Lord, then, you know, maybe you've got to get off your butt. But whatever God's called you to right now, whether it's your job, whether it's taking care of the house, whether it's volunteering, raising grandkids, caregiving for the sick. Do I really need to go on and on? Whatever you're called to do right now at this time in your life, do it as unto the Lord, as if you're doing it for the Lord, and do it in love. And that's a very pleasing way to the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to look back from the finish line one day with peace and contentment because God's grace is sufficient and he supplied us all the way through that to live for him, to bring him glory, to run the race the right way. So the fact is that God can get us there and does get us there as he did for Paul. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. 2 Timothy 4, 6. Again, on the board, in such a way, the way to run the race includes whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, and let all that you do be done in love. 2 Timothy 4.6 For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, this is Paul, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. There's the race. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Imagine right now being able to say that one day honestly from your own heart, like in total honesty in your soul, honesty in your soul that you can say one day, looking back, you know what? I fought the, I did my best for the Lord. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. How sweet will that be? That, that you didn't go AWOL as a soldier. That, you, that you're on your dying bed and you don't have any regrets because you relied on God's grace the whole way by faith. How sweet will that be? And yet that's our destiny. God's grace can't fail. That's what we're actually designed for and called to. And as long as you don't quit, God's going to uh, get you there. And as we've been learning, we can't quit, which is a different perspective than we've learned in the past. So again, verse 7, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. On Sunday, we heard 
baseball used as an analogy to the game of living by faith. Our quest is to run around the bases, so to speak, knowing that we end up back in the Father's hands where we began. Thank God for that. And Job knew that on the board in Job 121. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. In other words, I'm good with that. I accept that, that that's God's calling on our lives. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. What does the world do? People in the world like, I'm not going to die. I'm never actually going to get old. I'm never actually going to have to face the Lord. This is such a denial that people don't even want to talk about it, right? There's such a denial that they think they can accumulate things to themselves and it'll last and it'll keep going this way forever. Like the guy with the barns. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there. That's the truth for us pilgrims on the earth. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's attitude was simple and pure and true. God allowed me to be born at home plate, so to speak. He gave me some bases to run in my life to the best of my ability for him. And in the end, I win. In the end, I score at home plate back in his arms again from where I started, all by grace. So it's a good analogy for this brief time on earth that we call life. And as believers, this is actually our destiny, to the return to the one who gave us life. All the good that we do by the grace of God. So we might on the board call this living out God's grace. Living out God's grace. There's no doubting or questioning. This is the purpose we were born for and born again for. You like that, DJ? This is the purpose we were born for, but also born again for. Unfortunately, those that were born but aren't born again, they don't have or know this purpose, this destiny. But living out God's grace, running around the bases by grace, and coming home when he wants us to come home. There's no doubting or questioning that's our purpose and objective for being here. At the same time, God calls us to run the bases by the rules. If you know baseball, if you don't touch a base as you go around, you can be called out. Your run for God could be disqualified when we don't go by the rules. So go to 2 Timothy 2.3. Let's see this one more time. 2 Timothy 2.3. So Paul, through the Spirit, warned us about this. It says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So in other words, the soldier that goes off the path or the athlete that ignores the rules, he's going to miss out on the prize. So pay attention to the word. Heed the rule book. Heed the rule book. How can our nose not be in the word of God every day? searching for God's way, God's rules, so that we stay on the path, so we don't um, violate the rules of the competition, so to speak. There's a lot to learn. So pay attention to the word, and you won't be a casualty, if you will, uh, missing out on the prize. Go to 1 Corinthians 9.23. First Corinthians nine twenty three. So let's heed the warnings. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, 
so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Notice again, folks, I don't know if you remember this, but a few months ago, this connection came up in context, that the race is related to the gospel. The, ra the race is related to doing all things for the sake of the gospel. Whatever your role is in the Great Commission, for example, they're directly related. So do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And that should have meaning to all of us, not just an apostle. Sometimes we preach to others, don't we? Like, you know, why are you doing this? Shouldn't, shouldn't, isn't this the right way to go? And then you do the exact same thing you told them not to do. And now you might be disqualified while you help them get on the right path. Foolishness of the flesh, I guess. But there is some such thing as a disqualification on the board. We must not touch, or we must <laughs> touch all the bases before we touch home plate lest we be disqualified from the competition. This disqualification may refer to multiple things, including but not limited to eternal rewards. So to take this back to where we started this from, regarding good sport, if we're going to make sport of anything, let it be to live by faith. Accept that challenge or calling from God. And please don't think your life doesn't matter. As we know, we can be harder on ourselves, but give grace to others. You, don't, you might think you don't have the calling of somebody else. Uh, your calling or your gift is not as good as somebody else's. Again, that's foolish comparison. Don't think your life doesn't matter. There are witnesses, both human and angelic, rooting you on and learning from your race and the way you run your race. The way you run your race. The way you clean the toilets. The way the widow put in her last two cents in the offering. There are people observing, human and angelic, rooting you on, and also learning from the way you run your race. So it doesn't matter where you are, folks. It doesn't matter what your calling is right now. That's, what, that's what's happening. And what's the one thing God specializes in? We saw this earlier. Taking the weak and making them strong. Giving them strength. So on the board in Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. I mean, it's so great. It's not a small cloud of witnesses surrounding you. It's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding you. Can you see most of them? Probably not. If we could see what's going on in the angelic realm, if we could see how many angels were watching the water baptism we had a couple weeks ago, we, we'd probably be surprised. You know, you might go, oh, maybe there were 100 there. Maybe there were 100,000 there. Or why don't we think big, supernaturally? Why do, we, why do we limit what might really be going on in the invisible realm? You know why? Because it takes faith. And we often don't have it. But God's like, these are the facts. There is a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me ask you a question. Would you live your daily life differently if you could see that there were 100,000 angels observing you? know the answer to that one but what does it take it takes faith so maybe we need to open our eyes of faith and imagine that's what's happening because that is what's happening so let us run the race with endurance 
Don't quit. Big picture. It's a huge picture. But it takes faith to see it. And by the way, don't forget, Jesus was perfect. I know you know that, but you're not. I know you know that too. Only Jesus was perfect. So don't get discouraged by your mistakes along the path while you're running the bases. God covers up our mistakes along the way. He gets us out of the pickle, as we talked about in baseball, the rundown. God covers up our mistakes along the way to bring us all the way to home plate by grace because His grace can't fail. So just go forward one day at a time by faith. What a concept. And that's the very reason we have to rely on His grace. So on the board, we saw the balance statement on Sunday. Only Jesus Christ has ever run the bases perfectly. We may find ourselves caught in a pickle from time to time, but by grace through faith, we shall advance. Don't forget to show even yourself appropriate grace, as we saw in Philippians 3, 12 through 16. So keep your focus on the divine race before you knowing God has provided the grace for you to succeed wonderfully. Wonderfully. God hasn't provided the grace just to get you around the bases. He's provided the grace for you to wonderfully, in a worthy manner, bring Him glory. Uh, if you want, go home and read Zechariah chapter 3. Go home and read Zechariah chapter 3. It's about Joshua the high priest who was in dirty robes. God's high priest in dirty robes. And Satan was accusing him. See how God covered him. See how God dressed him up to be worthy in God's eyes by grace. And as you run this race, keep your eyes out for the roadblocks. Because in the spiritual race, the roadblocks aren't on the road. They're just off the road, and they're very tempting. They're usually off to the side, but close enough for you to see and be pulled away to a different path. So on the board, Satan's strategy. It's not that Satan doesn't want you to run a race. In fact, he might even convince you to stay on God's path for a while. He might help you stay on God's path for a while. some way, somehow, and then try to veer you off course. Remember, he's a master deceiver. He's a counterfeiter. He's going to pretend he's on your side even, maybe through a person or through an organization. I don't know. It's not that Satan doesn't want you to run a race. He just wants you to run towards a different finish line than the one the Lord has set before you. On the board, Proverbs 1521, folly or foolishness is joy to him who lacks sense. But a man of understanding walks how? Straight. Straight. Don't think you're missing out by staying on God's straight path. The foolishness of, of youth has taught many of us that lesson. And if you're young, listen to us. Listen to us. Save yourself a lot of pain and heartache. Stay in the straight path. Learn what true peace and contentment and happiness is all about that only God can give you. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. Only if we keep our eyes on God's love for us and the love that hung on the cross, only then are we going to stay on the right track. Love's the great motivator. Only then will we stay on the right track and not stray away from our first love. On the board, love is what keeps soldiers soldiering. Love is a great motivator, the great motivator, and love never fails. So how can you go wrong if you rely on love? 
if you rely on grace. Love is the great motivator, and love never fails. I want you to think about for a minute a uh, coach, let's say a football coach. Think about a football coach that loves his players, that even expresses his love to his players. I love you guys like sons. You're like my boys. And isn't afraid to share that compassion, if you will, that love, that caring for his players. And that's where you get the saying, they'll run through a brick wall for him. Why? Because they know he actually loves them. They believe he actually loves them like sons. And they'll do anything for him. So how about Jesus Christ? He proved he loves us more than anybody else loves us. So isn't realizing that, that he loves us that much, isn't that the greatest motivation anyone could ever have? Love makes you do anything for somebody if you believe their love for you. It's the powerful motivation in the world. So if you don't have it, ask for it. If you're not appreciating it, Listen, I do this every day, it seems like. Lord, help me understand and appreciate your love. I don't get it. Help me see. Open my eyes of faith. But that's where it's at. On the board in John 3.16, God so loved the world. And in John 15.12, Jesus said, Love one another just as I have loved you. And then 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. When we stop and consider God's love, we're able to love because He first loved us. Look at the lives of the apostles that we've been studying. They live this way. They live this way. You notice a lot of their mistakes are recorded while Jesus was with them on earth, Right? A lot of their faults that we're studying that are very encouraging to us. But when the Lord ascended into heaven, look how they lived in the book of Acts, for example. They lived this way. They lived in love and grace and forgiveness. It's almost like they finally got it in a way. The Holy Spirit was now helping them out, of course. But they lived in love and forgiveness, just like the Lord told them to. How could they not? And the question goes to us too. How can we not? If he did what he did for us. So here's an example. Peter inquired of the Lord about forgiveness. And the Lord gave him a number of times that seemed impossible to forgive someone. But the Lord has forgiven each of us way more than that. So the question is on the board... How can we not forgive others for lesser sins than we committed against God? Matthew 18, 21 through 25. How can we not? Go to Matthew 18, 21. And as we read these verses, remember context is key. Context teaches us a bigger picture, the, the whole story. This whole passage is talking about forgiving others and being motivated by the massive forgiveness that we've all received. And remember why this passage came up. We love because he first loved us, right? That's the only way we can love, when we understand how much he first loved us. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So if God loved us so much that he forgave us all of our sins, how can we put a limit on how much we forgive another person? So you're saying that we want, or you want, Unlimited forgiveness by God. Unlimited. Lord, don't number my sins. Keep going. Just keep forgiving. But I really would like to put a limit on how much I have to forgive others. 
Isn't that what we do? The problem isn't the number. The problem is putting a limit on forgiveness at all. And by the way, is it possible to put a number on all of our sins in our lifetime? Go back to when you were three or four years old, when you can first remember. Forget about the sins you committed before four years old. They were there, but you can't remember those, so don't worry about those. Start writing down from age four all the sins you committed. I think it's impossible for us to even know them, forget write them down, but to even know all the sins we actually committed. So if our sins are without number, which is fair to say, I mean, God might know the number, but it's ginormous. <laughs> TJ, it's so easy. <laughs> but seriously, it's, it's, an, it's an innumerable number. Now, so we, we expect, we ask for that forgiveness from God, and yet we almost demand to put a number on how much we can forgive somebody else. So look at verse 23. Jesus said, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's a lot of money, folks. I forget how much it was, but it's like a million dollars or something. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. God could have done that to us. I'm going to sell you off to Satan. Fine, you cho choose his way, you, you sin against me. His Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. This is a picture of God feeling compassion for us, released him, and forgave him the debt. The whole thing, by the way. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling Ouch. There we see a hard heart. How sad considering what he'd just been forgiven. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And there again we see God looks at the heart. Remember where we started tonight. An act of grace that's not motivated by love really isn't an act of grace. Not in God's eyes. God looks at the heart. So how can we forgive others from the heart? Maybe the better question is how can we not forgive others from the heart? Considering how much the Lord has forgiven us. One key is this, we can love. We can. You can, in your flesh and in your own power. But we can love because we have the power to love because he first loved us. That's what gives us the power to love. He first loved us completely and unequivocally, including total and complete forgiveness of all our sins. So again, love never fails. If you're lacking love, pause and look back at his love for you and his forgiveness of your sins. It's that simple. 
pause and look back at the cross and realize He did that on purpose just for you, for your innumerable sins. That should give you the love to love others supernaturally even. But it's the flesh that lies to us. It's the flesh that makes us think differently, that even makes us think we can't forgive somebody. Why? Because we're not looking at the love of God. We're looking at self. Our three enemies plant seeds of doubt in our souls. And we have to know and realize where this doubt comes from. But God, God's made us brand new creatures. And we haven't been designed to quit. We haven't been designed to quit. Don't let Satan tell you otherwise. You, the real you, the new you, the new nature of Christ in you, God designed that nature to not be able to quit. That's why you can't quit. And while your flesh will lie to you, you actually cannot quit if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Spirit's been telling us, we need to stop assuming we have options. That's our problem. And we entertain doubts. I mean, I was, I've been doing this recently. I don't even know how long I've been doing it for. Entertaining doubts. In other words, when the doubt comes in, you give it a seat at the table right next to you, and you feed it, and you pet it. No, really, why do you even give it a seat at the table? When a doubt comes into your soul, why don't you give it the boot? Why don't you kick it right out the door immediately? Why do we entertain it? We do. So on the board, rejoice, because we don't have options. Rejoice. We've been made new perfect in Christ, and because of that, we will prevail. God's grace makes sure of it. So if you're a true believer, God won't let you quit. Rest on that. Believe that. Don't doubt that. Believe that. God won't let you quit, and he won't give you more than you can handle. Again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit because I want to end with one thing for you as we begin to close. Some of this here is review, but I want to end with the topic of lies. Lies are everywhere in this world and come at us from all directions. It's like they're constantly hanging in the air for us to breathe in or not. That's how common the lies are in this world. If we knew how many lies, we'd be, again, probably blown away, things that we don't see. So don't listen to the lies. That's what the Spirit's been telling us. In fact, He's been telling us to call out the lies for what they are. When you doubt God's grace or goodness, that's a lie. That's from a lie. That thought that you just had, doubting God's grace and goodness, is from a lie that was somehow planted in your soul. So call it out. Even say it out loud, even, if you have to. Say, that's a lie. You know, give Satan the Italian sign if you want from Sunday. Say, that's a lie. I'm not buying it. That's bull. Cast it out of your soul and stop entertaining it. Satan hates, doesn't want us to do that. But that's our calling. That's our warning from the Spirit. And in the Bible it says, Satan is the father of lies. Turn to a John 8, 44. Satan is the father of lies. John 8, 44. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Isn't that interesting? Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why is Jesus calling Satan the father of lies? And how big is that? It's quite a title. 
Think of eternity past, before the human race was created, when Satan flew around heaven, whispering lies into the ears of the other angels, slandering his very own creator. That's the very strategy of Satan's attacks against God. It's lies, which is actually a form of violence, according to Scripture. That was his trade, according to Ezekiel 28, 14 through 19. Turn there as we begin to close here. This will be our last passage, I promise. Ezekiel 28, 14. In other words, Satan's in the business of lies. If you were to say Satan has a, a, a business on the street corner, like a shop set up, the main thing he sells is lies. Really, it's his main strength. It's his main business. Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen, You, Satan, were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. But notice Satan's trade was slander, slandering God, lies about God and God's love and grace towards his creatures. So remember, lies in this world come from all directions, folks. It's almost in the air we breathe, ready to be sucked in whenever we choose to. We might call it a web of lies that tries to surround you and get you stuck in its sticky web. On the board, a web of lies. Think of our three enemies in this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what the Bible says are our three enemies in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we have lies from without, lies from within us, the flesh, and liars called evil spirits whispering in our ears. This is a battle, folks. Why do you think, you know, people don't want to be a good soldier? Because a good soldier is on the front lines getting attacked. It's a web that Satan hopes to get you caught in. It's a sticky mess that he wants you to buy as the better way of life. But remember, we have the power and grace of God to call out these lies. Grace never fails. We have the power and grace of God to call out these lies as soon as they hit our plate. So pray for discernment and pray for the courage to call them out and cast them out of your soul as soon as they come in. Give them the boot right out the door. Don't entertain them. Call it out for what it is immediately. I have to do a better job of this, I know. Call it out for what it is immediately and don't allow it in your soul. Let's end this way on the board. Doubts are not from God. So who are they from? Scripture is pretty clear about that. Doubts are not from God. So who are they from? Don't be afraid to call them out for the lies that they are because they are temptations from the pit of hell to steer away from God, to even not even be an evil person, to be a good person. Just don't follow God anymore. Don't follow the Lord anymore. Don't be a good soldier. 
Run the race by the rules, right? So doubts are not from God. Just think about who they're from and don't allow them to fester in your soul. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word and your wisdom. Through your spirit and your word, we thank you for teaching us what we need to hear today. And we ask that you help us apply these things in humility. Help us to receive these things and accept these things as true so that we can be set free as you desire because we know your load is easy and your burden is light. We ask that you bless us all as we go and help us take your word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.